0: left.
1: Welcome to a Tuesday edition of the RotoWire NBA podcast brought to you, as always, by WinBet, winbet WinBet.com. If you're in a state that allows you to bet on WinBet, make sure you check them out. Uh, Alex Barutha, you're joining me, as always, on Tuesdays. We'll be in Vegas next month. Cannot wait uh, to play some bets in person for the first time in what feels like forever. Uh, Do you have anything circled on the radar for when we're out there in mid-July?
2: Uh, nothing circled as far as like sports betting is concerned. I'm mm-hmm. sure there'll be some interesting um, non sports betting. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just, you know, the usual blackjack and craps, mm-hmm. mostly roulette, just to kind of, um, you know, just <laughs> stay alive as long as just, possible yeah. with Velocity. the money that I brought. Yeah. How about you?
1: I want to look at NFL futures. I mean, being out there in mid-July is not an ideal time, especially with this NBA season, which I think it's going to overlap with maybe a finals game or two, which would be cool, but is not ideal for long-term NBA betting, you know, with no draft or free agency yet. Um, I assume we won't have like a ton of concrete numbers, if any, for next season. But yeah, it's going to be NFL focused. I'm weirdly high on the Jaguars, which I have been for the last 28 years, but I, I feel like they've, they're on the right track finally, and, and the Titans getting Julio Jones is not a step in the right direction for the Jags winning the AFC South. But for the first time in a very long time, they won't be the worst team in that division hands down going into the year. And I don't, I still don't really trust Tennessee. I don't really trust Carson Wentz. Um, if I can bet the Jaguars at a reasonable number to win the AFC South, I will do that.
2: Have you even looked at the numbers yet, or are you just gonna get there? and It's gonna be a gut feeling.
1: It's gonna be a gut feeling. I've, I've done a little bit of searching, um, but you know, as, as you know, I, there's something about picking up that extra large piece of paper that has all the bets on it. Um, It's it's just not the same as looking at the odds online.
2: That's very true.
1: All right. um, I just got back. Uh, I'm recording live from my apartment, as are you. I I took a quick dip in the pool just before this, just to kind of reset my body, get me ready. Uh, I'm ready to talk about what happened in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York last night. An all-time embarrassing loss from the Milwaukee Bucks, which in, in multiple group chats last night spanned the, or spawned the conversation. You know, where does this rank in all-time embarrassing Wisconsin sports losses, which is a conversation that I feel like I'm having every two to three months at this point. And of course, there were a number of candidates ranging from the Bucs to the Packers to the Badgers. Um, even some Brewers losses were thrown in there. But I, I got the sense that everyone, even after how game one transpired, uh, which was kind of like a baby version of what happened last night, it got the sense that everyone was really optimistic about this game. You know, it felt like the Bucks. obviously they were blown off the court in game one without James Harden, but they were at least able to keep it close. They were able to battle back and, and you know, keep it within low double digits or single digits for most of the game. That was not the case whatsoever. And it was clear this was one of those game is over by the end of the first quarter type of outcomes. And, you know, Milwaukee never really truly made a run where, you know, I'm thinking just thinking back to some of those Suns Lakers blowouts last round. And there was a time like the Lakers were down like 30 in one of those games. And all of a sudden it's down to 11 or 12 and you're thinking, okay, maybe they have a chance to pull this off you know, scoring a stop and, and all of a sudden it's down to eight or nine. There was never a point in this game where you felt like the Milwaukee Bucks were anywhere close to putting something together to actually claw their way back into it.
2: Yeah, I think um, I, I hate to say it, but uh, Buchenholzer might be getting out coached right now, uh, which has I guess, been the main concern for uh, Bucks fans, you know, for the past year or two, basically ever since, you know, the, the Bucks lost in the Eastern Conference finals against the Raptors. Um, and, you know, I know that, I mean, the Nets, even without James Hargan, their talents unbelievable. I think, you know, Joe Harris is impossible to guard. He makes, you know, half his threes, essentially Blake Griffin is in the perfect role for him right now. Um, and you know, the book, I mean, the Bucks are shooting kind of unsustainably bad, but at the same time, this is, that's the conversation we were having about the heat last round, Right. Because the Nets right now are kind of doing what to the Bucks what the Bucks were doing to the Heat. Um, and you look at the numbers, you go, well, you know, they can't keep shooting 25% from three. But I kind of still wonder, like, what is, what is really going to change other than home court? You know, because mm-hmm. Kyrie and uh, KD have been hitting some ridiculous shots, but that's also who they are, right? They score 25 to 30 a game on ridiculous shots their entire career. Um, so I, I don't know, where do you think the bucks go from here?
1: I think you're spot on that. It it reminded me of what Milwaukee did to the heat. And it also reminded me of what the heat did to the bucks in the bubble last (laughs) year, like watching Giannis, especially where, I mean, the nets were able to guard him very effectively with Blake Griffin for most of this game. And Nick Claxton was on him every now and then that worked out fine. KD did fine. Uh, I mean, there was a, a couple possessions where Giannis, you know, got, you know, instead of kind of trying to get his head of steam and. Basically sprint as fast as he can and then do a euro step and you're just hoping that the defender doesn't guess right and draw the charge, which it, it went both ways a couple of times last night. There, there was one time when he actually tried to post up Kevin Durant and he he couldn't move him. And I, I don't know if this is just a kind of a mental block for Giannis or it's a footwork issue, but it, you know, there's a lot of fading away, uh, you know, kind of some of those like Dirk baseline jumpers. And you know Giannis has gotten better at those and it, it's nice to have that in your arsenal, but it just felt like he wasn't getting to the rim nearly as much as as we're used to seeing. And that was the case, you know, in round one, he was able to get to the rim at will. But what the biggest contrast for me is like, we saw them play the nets back to back twice in three days at the end of the regular season. And James Harden didn't play in those games either. And this has just been complete night and day effort uh, defensively from Milwaukee and and from Giannis, especially in, in terms of, you know, how effective he was in those two games. He was fine in game one, I thought, but last night, I mean, I I tweeted this out, like, I think it was late in the second quarter, um, Grant Hill, who was on color for this game, mentioned, like, oh, Giannis reminds me of a seven-foot Russell Westbrook. And he was saying in, in the context of Giannis, like, running the fast break and what he can do and, you know, getting ahead of steam and finishing at the rim. But, I mean, that's kind of what it looked like overall for Giannis offensively, was the way that teams have started to guard Russell Westbrook and, you know, dare him to just plow in. And even if he does get to the line, dare him to make those shots. I mean, that's, that's one of the other kind of underrated storylines for me of this, not only this series, but you know, this season and these playoffs is, I mean, Giannis is two of 10 at the line through these two games and the two makes are are a massive issue, but the fact that he's only gotten there 10 times is a whole different ball game.
2: Right. I feel, yeah, I feel like, uh, as the years have gone on, I've liked Giannis's half court offense less and less. I don't know mm-hmm. if you feel the same way. I, I don't like that turnaround post up shot. I know that like he, I mean, it's a go-to move for him, but I, I don't like it. I don't like the mid-range pull-ups. I don't like the three-point pull-ups. Um, and he, again, he just doesn't have his his general footwork. He's just not a good post player either. Um, and you know, the they're just sagging so far back. You know, they're willing to just basically stand at like the ten-foot mark, like in the middle of the paint, because they know Youngest can't hit like that floater either. Um. And so that, that's a problem. And then, you know, when that's the case, you can also guard The, the Nets can also guard Middleton more, Drew Holiday more, you know, that the, they're able to put pressure on the, uh, the second, third, fourth option. And, um, yeah, Middleton holiday really haven't been able to get going. I mean, no one else on the team has really been able to get going. I mean, Brooke Lopez is, I think probably been the team's second best player, which is a pretty bad sign.
1: It, it is a bad sign when he's your second best player. But I also recall you and I talking, I think with James even last week about this, where we had all kind of agreed that Brooke Lopez might be the swing player in this series, where if he has a really good series, the Bucks probably advance and maybe end up making the finals and winning the whole thing. He's played well so far. The problem is that the guys that we kind of assumed were more constants, Giannis, Middleton and Holiday, just haven't been that good. And I, I thought Holiday was actually fine for the most part last night. I thought he was the guy, uh, especially at like toward the end of the first quarter and in the second quarter who was actually making a point to get to the rack and and kind of stop the bleeding as much as he could. So I I think he's been okay. I mean, he's three of nine from three in the series. That's not great, but he's also not Joe Harris. You know, you're not expecting him to shoot 45 percent from three. And I don't think you want Drew Holiday launching seven three pointers a game anyway. Um, And you also have to take into account that the starters like, you know, barely played in the fourth quarter in this game. So some of these totals numbers um, are a little bit lower than they normally would be. I think we need to talk about Middleton, though. I, I feel like from what you see on Twitter and, and you know who you talk to during these games, it feels like most of the vitriol is directed towards Middleton. Does that seem accurate?
2: Uh, yeah, I think so. Because he, yeah, he, cause, cause he's Noah the guy who's to supposed to. Game. Yeah, he, he's the guy who's supposed to bail out the offense when Giannis is not able to hit shots. Like he's right. the guy or when, who's
1: or when the defense is playing eight feet off of Giannis and you, you know it to get a runway and just get to the rim game isn't working as was the case last night. Like if, if the nets are going to be able to effectively guard Giannis with Blake Griffin for 20 plus minutes a night, like this series is going to be over in four games. Probably.
2: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, another issue, especially with last night's game, I didn't look into this for, um, I didn't look into this for game one, but the nets and bucks took the same amount of shots at the rim last night. And that's a recipe for disaster for the Bucks you know, if you're matching the nets in terms of attempts at the rim, you're losing because that means you're taking as many jumpers as the nets. And the nets are one that might go down as other than the warriors, uh, the dynasty warriors, the best jump shooting team ever. So like you have to get, you have to stop them from getting to the rim. You have to get to the rim more like the box shot really well at the rim. It's just like you, when you're, when you're unable to make a mid range jumper, when you're unable to make a three pointer, it's just, again, you, you see what happens? The Bucks lose by like forty.
1: So I, I have a few things that I jotted down. As luck would have it, uh, I, I looked into some of the shooting numbers, not only from last night but from Game Two as well. Milwaukee's six of 23 as a team on mid-range jumpers. I think that passes the eye test based on what you see. They are two of 10 on corner three-point attempts. The Nets, by comparison, are 16 of 31 in the mid-range, six of 11. On corner threes. Eleven attempts seems low, by the way. I feel like Joe Harris was six of eleven on corner threes last night alone. From three overall, the Bucks are 14 of 57 in the series. Brooklyn 36 of 81. And that is just a massive discrepancy. That's 25% versus 44%. On catch and shoot threes specifically, Milwaukee is five of twenty-seven. Brooklyn twenty-six of fifty-one. So I mean, one thing that stands out to me about those numbers, obviously the efficiency discrepancy is massive. I mean, catch and shoot threes, you're talking 19% versus 51%. Um and, and to the Bucks credit, a lot of the looks that KD and Kyrie especially were hitting last night were contested. I mean, Giannis was doing a I thought a really good job of of working hard to contest those shots, but those guys are are just professional shot makers and that's what they do. But the fact that over half of Milwaukee's threes so far in this series are coming on pull-up attempts rather than catch and shoot is very concerning.
2: Yeah. I think um this kind of goes back to the problem of you know after game one my initial thought was and this is probably just being biased as a bucks fan was like katie and kyrie aren't going to keep hitting shots with hands in their face all the time and that's just that's like not (laughs) that's what they do like this isn't you know so like you can't expect regression from those guys necessarily like they might have one bad game when, when that's the case but that's what that's what they do and i think to some extent that's what chris middleton can do which is what's so frustrating when you see him not play well is because you know that he hits shots when people's hands in his face all the time but youngest isn't really a guy who's making like obviously you don't even want him shooting jumpers in the first place i don't really like drew is not really a hands-on-his-face like jumper guy necessarily um so it's it's tough the bucks kind of need open looks more than the the nets need open looks um, and the Bucs aren't really getting to the I mean, neither team is really getting to the free throw line. The Nets have only taken eight free throws this whole series mm-hmm. um, or excuse me, uh, 16 free throws, eight per game. The Bucs are at 28 total free throws. I feel like that needs to be way higher. I feel like you need to be getting to the line like 15 mm-hmm. times a game against these Nets. Like you need to punish you know them inside for the relative lack of size that they have. Um, the Bucs just, again, haven't been able to do it. And I, I don't know what you do when, you know, I, I think. You know, we have seen teams play against the Warriors, you know, they'd sag off at Draymond Green mm-hmm. and then you they have Draymond, you know, do a dribble handoff because the defender was so far away. The Bucks probably just need to do more of that when teams are sagging off of Giannis. But um, you know, I I don't really um I don't really, I think they need to kind of spam that and just like keep just do that like possession after possession and see what they can get. Yeah,
1: it felt like they waited way too long to make any sort of adjustments. Uh, And I don't don't even know if they made any adjustments in in game two. And I mean, obviously, the game was decided midway through the second quarter. It was basically out of reach. So I I don't know. At at that point, um, you know, I I think it's hard to get like a real look at at what some of that you know might look like in a real game scenario. But yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see some drastically different looks from Milwaukee offensively. The thing is, I don't know that they have. Anyone else on the roster who you can say like, all right, this guy needs more minutes or this guy needs fewer minutes. Like right. this is the group that you're dealing with. You know, the, you have all these you know younger players that the, that the fan base I think really likes. You know, talking like Jordan, Wara, Sam Merrill, guys like that. They're not going to make a difference in a playoff series against Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Like, I, I, I this is kind of the crew that they have to live and die by, and it, it really comes down to getting more from Giannis and figuring out a way to make him not have to resort to just knocking down jumpers because. Even if he comes out in Game Three and and is hitting you know more of those fadeaways or is able to step in and hit a couple threes and shoot with confidence, like we said on the pod last week, I I don't think n- nothing's going to cause the Nets to drastically change their defensive scheme. It's worked so well these first two games that even if Giannis comes out and goes ten of ten on mid range jumpers, they're not all of a sudden going to start guarding him thirty feet from the basket.
2: No, no, they're not. I think I'm not sure, man. This is it's it's this is really where. I think this this game of three might kind of decide Mike Boonholzer's job. I think. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. It, I, if they lose game three, he's done, right? I mean, they they're not coming back from down three zero.
2: If it's like a really close loss, you know, I think that that becomes a tougher decision. But if the Bucks happen to get blown out, which is a guarantee because I'll be in attendance, so when the Bucks get blown out, um. I think I think that pretty much does it for Bugenholzer if he if, if there's like no real adjustments being made, you know? Well it's what if just,
1: what if they're competitive in the series? Like if they lose the series five game or four games to one, is he out no matter what? Like what how how close, quote unquote, does it have to be for him to come back?
2: I mean, I think if it goes six games, you know, it's relatively competitive. Um I think he's probably fine. I I still think ownership is probably Um, or I, you know, and, and management is probably considering it regardless of what happens. Um, probably not if they get a win, but the thing is these nets, like the nets are so good, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this, this might just be a case of, you know, we could, we could be talking about the, this nets team. Like we were talking about the warriors where it's like every team that goes up against them is just almost guaranteed a loss. Like if you happen to beat them, you know, that's incredible. Th- that might be the kind of team that we're looking at, and even without James Harden, uh, to some extent, which is scary. So I don't know. I think I think if it's a I think if it's a like a blowout, he's he's probably done because just the lack of adjustments, um, lack of effective adjustments are it's mm-hmm. kind of troublesome.
1: It, it cannot be overstated that the Nets are doing this without a seven time all NBA player, an MVP, a guy who's finished in the top three in MVP voting like three or four times. That that I think is what is the most damning for Bud and for this Bucks team overall. Like if Harden doesn't play in the series and, and yeah, you know, they make it semi-competitive, like maybe they go down 3-1 and then you know it's 3-2 and they lose in six. I you know, I, I think you can say like the Nets were just the better team, which they are, but for this to happen without James Harden, like that that is just what's I, I think the the ultimate dagger if you're a Bucks fan or if you're anybody who cares about the series, because If the, if game two went like it did last night and James Harden went for 25 with 11 assists and Durant had 30 and Kyrie had 30, you'd be like, look, what do we do, man? Like, you know, we, we, we can't, we can't shut all these guys down. You, if you try to go too hard at shutting one of them down, the other two are going to go off. Like, you know, there would just be this kind of, you throw your hands up and it's, you know, you chalk it up to one team's just that good without Harden. I don't think you really have that built in excuse anymore.
2: No, not really. Um, and and the Nets right now have the you know two best players in the series. Um, oh, easily by far. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't have to be like that, you know. I think Middleton and Holiday, I, Middleton probably more would have the potential to be better than Kyrie Irving in a series. Um, but it's just not it's just not happening right now. Um, yeah, man. I mean, if this team happens to get James Harden back, mm-hmm. um, I they they're gonna win the finals, right?
1: I, I think they might win the finals without James Harden. and I,
2: right. I do think they'll yeah. get him
1: back at some point. I, I think the way this series is going, you probably don't even push him to come back unless you, you feel like you really need him. Um, I, ironically, this was the worst playoff or worst second round loss that we've seen since the was James Harden drugged game in 2017, <laughs> uh, Rocket Spurs. That was also a 39-point loss. It was the worst Bucks playoff loss since a, a game that I feel like everyone who follows the Bucks is very familiar with, the Mike Dunleavy game. In 2015, that was a 120 to 66 uh, loss to the Chicago Bulls that ended with Giannis like running full speed and like spearing Mike Dunleavy into the second row.
2: That uh, that moment continues to be lost in like Giannis history. Yeah, it's so obscure.
1: Uh, yeah, it was, like there's no other superstar that has a moment like that. Right. You never be like, man, you remember when, remember when LeBron just trucked that guy? his second year in the league like i don't is there is there a comparison even like it it has just gotten completely glossed over that whole era of bucks basketball like it happened it was only like five or six years ago that feels like it was like 15 years ago
2: yeah i uh no off the top of my head i can't really think of anything because that was so i mean that's so absurd what he did um (laughs) it was crazy yeah i mean it was as blatant of a flagrant too as you're ever gonna see i know um I'm, I hope we get something like that from him at the end of this series. If it goes downhill, just absolutely like taking out Mike James. Yeah. It's
1: like Bruce Brown goes flying into the fifth row. <laughs> um, one more point on Harden. I was thinking about this during the game too. Like not an ideal outcome for James Harden, right? It's like, yeah, you know, somehow they lose a game to the Celtics in round one with Harden. All of a sudden you take him away and the offense is like clicking at a level that we haven't even seen from them this year. Uh, I'm not, obviously they're, they're a much better team with Harden. I'm I'm kind of half joking about this, but if you're Harden, the guy has, you know, been the, the biggest playoff flop of any superstar in the modern era, like the last thing you need is your team to cruise to a title without you.
2: Right. <laughs> well, he I mean, you know, as good as James Harden is, he is kind of a ball stopper. Um, like yeah. he's a gr- obviously he's a great passer. Um, like he's not decreasing the level of passing on your team, but he does stop the ball like the ball just it it pings around a lot more when he's not on the court. Um, So it's a different it's a different style. Obviously, you want like Harden is the perfect guy to have out there. Like (laughs) when Kyrie and Kevin Durant aren't on the court together, obviously, like those minutes, if you can have James Harden out there during those minutes, that's just absurd. Um, Yeah.
1: It should be noted, too, that the Bucks lost the minutes when Durant and Kyrie were on the bench. I think it was to start the second quarter. They lost that stretch like nine to six. So it's like that was like the one time where you felt like, OK, if they can just, you know, with these guys off the court, if they can go on like an 11 to two run here, all of a sudden it's back within reason. And it went the other way. And that's where were able to extend the lead. And, and that was virtually the game. A few other numbers that I want to throw out there. The Bucks' offensive rating is about 97 points per 100 so far uh, in this series. Giannis, Middleton, Holiday have a 95.9 offensive rating in 43 minutes together that's minus 12.6 net rating uh meanwhile kd and kyrie their two-man offensive rating or net rating excuse me is plus 24.7 uh points per 100 in 69 minutes it hasn't been good there, there's really no lineup combination that you could put together uh if you, if you go to nba.com stats that you know points to like oh the bucks just need to play these guys more and they'll be fine like every lineup combination you 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 type in there is just horrible
2: yeah. Um, interestingly enough, um, Giannis, out of everybody on the Bucks who's played at least 100 minutes in the playoffs, has the worst point differential on the team. Minus 14, um, which is terrible. Drew Holiday plus 27. Everyone else is kind of between seven and minus two. Mm. Um, I I think I think the key adjustment for Buchenholzer and the Bucks at this at this point has to be what do we do? Like, how does Giannis adjust to this? Yeah, You know, because it's like if you can just kind of shut down Giannis by literally not acting like he's on the court unless he's eight feet from the basket, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I hate
1: to say it, like it, it things definitely snowballed last night where the shots weren't falling early. Giannis wasn't in a groove and all of a sudden, you know, it's a 20 point game. But if you if you roll out the exact game for Milwaukee last night, but Middleton goes 14 of 25 from the field. Instead of whatever he finished, which was not good, I don't think it changes the end result. Like they weren't, they weren't like a, a very good Middleton game away from winning that game. Like there were, there were other issues such as this one that you're talking about that I think are, are are, are kind of bigger elephants in the room for the Bucks.
2: And they lose, and they lose this game if Dante DiVincenzo is healthy. Like this isn't, he's not swinging no. this game. Maybe he swings game one, that Maybe. that was close enough. But that Connaughton has not been good. Uh, not that anybody
1: expected him to be good, but he has not been good.
2: No. No, I, he, he just, uh, he hasn't, but I, I don't know what the bucks do. I think, I mean, I was, you know, I, I thought they did really well in the heat series because they played Giannis and Brooke both like more like big men. Like, I think they continue to do that with Brooke Lopez, who, who only has, I think, eight threes, uh, three point attempts in this series, um, four, three point attempts in this series, which is great. Um, but it's not great that Giannis has more three point attempts than him. And I think they, You know, I mean, they talked about the dunker spot all year, right? That's a big thing in the Bucks offense. That's a new thing, having a guy in the dunker spot. Well, put just put Giannis down there then. Like, if they're not going to respect him when he has the ball, or even when he's off the ball, floating around the three-point line or whatever, you have to put him in the dunker spot. I think maybe that's the adjustment. Um, That's hard for him, probably. I mean, if you're a, you know, you're a a 30% kind of usage guy, and someone's like, go stand in the dunker spot. We're kind of getting into like Ben Simmons territory, you know, uh, but if that's what it takes. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mentioned the the seven foot Westbrook comp, I mean, it's he's kind of in that same class. Obviously, Giannis is, I think, a little more well-rounded than those guys, but similar limitations, despite the different body styles of all three. One thing that also doesn't portend well for Milwaukee is the fact that they have dominated the glass. In yep. both of these games. They're I think they're plus thirteen overall. They're like plus eleven on the offensive glass. They've been all over the O boards, especially in game one and, and for most of game two as well. And I think that was something that you know any, anyone who thought Milwaukee was going to win the series, you know, one of the reasons is you know they can dominate the glass. They're bigger, they're more physical, and that's been the case. And it just hasn't mattered. Like that that to me is a, a pretty big red flag.
2: It is. Um yeah, because you have to, you know, when you're playing a team as uh Potent as the Nets offensively, most of the 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 way you're going to outscore them or I guess outplay them in general is by getting more possessions than them, and you do that by winning the turnover battle, um, winning the offensive rebounding battle. I'm like you're right, they're dominating the offensive rebounding battle, but they're losing the turnover battle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Nets have 16 turnovers, uh, Bucks have 30, so yeah. they have, the Bucks also have to really cut down on the turnovers. You can't be if you average 15 turnovers a game in the playoffs against a team that's even remotely as good as you, yeah. you're, I mean, you're, you're pretty much screwed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Middleton had some bad ones last night. Some, some kind of backbreakers um, on, on driving kicks that were just kind of straight up intercepted. So for as bad as it's been, we just spent upwards of 20 minutes talking about how terrible Milwaukee has been and, and just, you know, the way that the series has gone so far, the Bucks can completely flip the narrative with a convincing win on Thursday night. In game three. So, like you said, you will be in attendance. Uh, You got good seats. I'm glad to hear that. How are you feeling about it now versus how you felt about it 24 hours ago?
2: So, I I walked into the office today and DJ, who used to do the Friday pod two years ago, or three years ago now. First thing he asked me was, was, do you have buyer's remorse? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't want to ask you that, but I'm wondering as well. um, I said no, because... So it's kind of there's a couple of reasons. Uh we've seen plenty of playoff series where the home teams win the first four games where it goes two oh and then two two. That that happens. However, uh if I'm handicapping this game, I think the Nets are the favorites, right? I will check on that, but I would guess, yes. Okay. Uh I I, I didn't look. I would guess that they're probably like two point favorites or something. Um and that makes me a little nervous. I don't have like, you know, I don't have a ton of faith in the Bucks. My main my main thing is I want the game to be competitive. That's all I really care about. And we actually I mean we strategically did not uh buy tickets for game four because we were that worried, you know. Um, <laughs> that, yeah,
1: that's like the worst case scenario as a fan. It's like even if you win, you're like, Well, we're still down three one.
2: Right. And I think that kind of just speaks to you know, our level of confidence, my level of confidence in the boxing and the series and how good I think the nets are. I just, I'm not sure the bucks are going to be able to make the adjustments that they need to make. Um, and I'm not sure if they're willing to, because I think I honestly, at this point, I do think it comes down to Giannis being like a dunker spot guy and just like constantly in pick and rolls. And I don't think they did that. They did that some during the regular season. I don't think they did it enough. Um, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping for (laughs) a competitive game. Milwaukee is
1: three and a half point favorite no, for game three, I, surprisingly. I,
2: well, I guess that if you if you if you figure three points for home court, you know, um, yeah, then it's yeah. I mean, I, I think it's possible they win game three and then kind of you know lose the rest of the way. But um, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't have confidence betting that number for the Bucks. So I'll just say that. So as we've been
1: recording here, uh, Shams Charania has reported that Jokic is officially the MVP as a surprise to no one. Um, not exactly newsworthy. I, I think it's going to be more interesting to see what the final vote is and, and how that splits up. I, I think he's going to be a landslide winner, but I, I don't think it'll be unanimous. We'll see. That, that would be fairly surprising to me. Um, meanwhile, the Nuggets got smacked around last night in a game that they got off to a hot start, looked really good early on, uh, you know, a game that was really close for most of the first half. And then in the third quarter, Phoenix goes on a 16-0 run, uh, part of a larger 42-14 run overall to blow this game wide open. At eight and look great. I think this was Chris Paul's best game of the playoffs. McCall Bridges, 23 points, five boards, five assists, two steals, four threes, had a block. Um, The Suns just looked really, really good. And I I mean, anybody who watched those games against the Lakers, it got a little dicey when they went down 2-1. But... Once that once Anthony Davis went down, especially, I think you, you could tell the Suns were not going to lose that series. They were not intimidated by whatever version of LeBron that was and, and certainly not by the rest of those Lakers role players. And I think that confidence from round one has, has carried over. And even though the Lakers role players were horrific in that series and, and Davis was never 100 percent and LeBron wasn't full LeBron, I, I still feel like the Nuggets are probably an easier team to go up against uh, than the Lakers. So I, I'm, I'm not really surprised that the Suns jumped out to this lead. I, I don't think they sweep or anything, but... I mean, the path we talked about this last week, like the path is very much there for Chris Paul now to get to his first NBA finals, because this is a very winnable series for the Suns, one that I think they could probably win in five games if things go well. And then, you know, Clippers, Jazz in in the Western Conference finals, that's probably a toss up series, especially if the Clippers start playing really well. But I don't know. I mean, I, I don't I don't think Chris Paul has ever gone into a Western Conference playoffs as you know, having like the best team, especially by round two, right? Like there's always been this juggernaut warriors team, or, you know, I'm trying to think like the Spurs earlier in the, earlier in the last decade, like it, things are setting up that, especially if the Clippers start to look a little bit shaky against Utah, I, I think the Suns become the favorite now to come out of the West.
2: Yeah. I can't remember if I, I definitely picked the Suns to win this series. I can't remember if it was in five or six. Um, I think it was five, but yeah, the the Suns half court offense was ridiculous in this game. It's like 125 points per 100 possessions in the half court. Um holding Jokic to 22 9 and 3 is a huge victory and probably the main reason that they did win. Um you know, cuz the Nuggets got like Nuggets got really good stuff from Aaron Gordon who was, you know, scored 18 points um efficiently while also like guarding Devin Booker a lot. Um Campazzo played well, like a lot of the role players Uh, played well for the nuggets but um you know again they're they're just not going to score enough points I don't think when Jokic can't uh if Jokic doesn't reach like 25 points five assists I don't know if that's like the baseline that seems like a baseline I have in my head where it's like if he can't get those numbers they can't win um unless Michael Porter goes for like 40 Mm -hmm. so um and DeAndre Ayton went for 20 and 10 couldn't slow him down I mean the Again, Aiden like four players went game for a 20. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I we, I, don't, I think we keep forgetting that Jamal Murray is hurt. Like a lot of people were saying like, oh, yeah, I, I see the path for Denver to win the series. I, I never really saw it. And I mean, maybe maybe they take game two and and all of a sudden things look a lot differently. But I think Phoenix is just the, the much more complete team right now when you take Jamal Murray out of the equation. Now, with Jamal Murray and with Will Barton, you know, then then I think it's probably a toss up series. But I mean, you're basically taking like a 20 point per game scorer, a guy who's had huge playoff performances uh, these last few years out of the mix. And as we've said multiple times, it's not only about losing Murray, it's about who's behind him and, and Capazo's, you know, up and down. But if if you're relying on Facundo Campazo to give you 30 plus minutes in a, in a must win series, like you're probably going to be doomed more often than not.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Him. And I mean, there's a lot of Austin rivers. Um, it's, it's tough. I think even the main thing, uh, the main thing for the Nuggets, they took six free throws, and I don't know how many games you're going to win if you are taking six free throws. Um, they just need to. I and again, like I don't know. I mean, it's 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 going to be tough to get the Suns to draw fouls because the Suns have, uh, you know, Aiton's playing. Jokic well he's not going to get baited into too many fouls like Nurkic was and Compasso's not baiting Chris Paul into fouls and I, I just don't know who on the you know the Nuggets is really going to go out there and draw fouls on these you know re- like the Suns are re- a really disciplined team great defensively um, so I think I mean if this ends up being a sweep again I probably wouldn't be surprised just because I did pick the Suns in five but yeah I mean just the they, they are uh, the Suns are way more of a complete team. You know, they have a legitimate, um, you know, like great top four um, with Booker, Bridges, Paul and Natan, And they're getting really good minutes from, you know, they're getting good minutes from Crowder. I mean, again, Crowder, Payne, Torrey Craig, Cam Johnson only played 14 minutes. But um, like those guys have been playing great since the Lakers series.
1: Yeah, the Suns role players have all stepped up. I mean, it, contrasting to the Lakers guys who, you know, nobody could buy a basket. Nobody was playing with confidence. Like all of these Suns players you came out, especially in round one, you know, looking very much ready for the moment. And even if they weren't shooting the ball all that well, you know, kept playing hard. Like Jay Crowder was what, like 0 of 8 from 3 in one of those games and ended up being a huge piece for them as they closed out the Lakers. So like, I, I think they look, to me, they're still probably not a, a title winning team. Um, like if we're talking Brooklyn Phoenix in the NBA finals, I, especially if James Harden's back, that's probably a, a net sweep to me. Um, you know, this, this isn't one of those years where the West is just going to beat each other up, but whoever makes it out, is going to have a cakewalk in the finals. Uh, I, I think, you know, if the Nets are there or, or even if Milwaukee somehow able to to pull back into this or, you know, we'll see what happens with Philly, um, the path to actually winning the title is going to be tough, but I don't know right now. I mean, based on what we saw from the Clippers last round, I still would have a tough time betting against Kawhi Leonard, especially the version of Kawhi that we saw in in game six and seven. But if something happens and, you know, they basically can't afford to, you know, blow the first two games against a team like Utah that against Dallas, you're able to climb back in, you know, Dallas has enough flaws that obviously they were able to come back and win that series. I think if the Clippers come out with that same kind of lackadaisical attitude and, you know, you still don't really know what you can depend on outside of Kawhi and Paul George, I don't think they'll be able to get away with that against Utah.
2: Yeah, I mean the the Clippers kind of caught a break here because Mike Conley's out for game one. Um and obviously the, the, the door's kind of open for him to also miss game two. That would create a lot of issues. But you're right, like I, I did the I did the kind of like round two preview for these uh for this series. I wrote this up this morning. And the main thing like you alluded to was you know like there's Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Those are the two guys. Everybody else is a question mark. And it kind of comes down to them hitting their threes. And if they are not hitting their threes, then it's just give the ball to Kawhi Leonard possession after possession mode. Like, please save us Kawhi mode. Um, and so like the clip for the Clippers, it's like, can the role players hit threes? If they can, they'll be able to win. If they, if they can't, um, it's I think it's going to be losses. I hate to make it like that simple, but I still can't trust Paul George. I, I don't feel like either, um, you know, that the Jazz have a much more complete team. The Jazz have a starting five that I trust completely. Like, you know, Um. and that's that's not the case for the Clippers, even though they have more top end talent.
1: I want to sneak in a little bit of Blazers talk because we, we kind of missed the cycle with the way that the week worked out and that series ended uh, last week. But Terry Stotts, obviously out in Portland uh, right away which you almost never hear from someone but Damian Lillard's like I want Jason Kidd he's the guy. And immediately after that Jason Kidd says I'm not the guy. He <laughs> recused himself from the running in Portland. Um I, I I maybe Kidd has something on the back burner that will come to light within the next few weeks or months. I don't know. Um, there was some speculation from Blazers corners of the internet that you know there was a, a pretty big pushback I guess to you know the, the domestic violence issues in Kidd's past that you know may have Kind of spooked whether it's ownership or or just the fan base that you know it basically made it clear that they weren't gonna be cool with that. Who knows? Um but it's you know I wanted to frame this discussion around like is Damian Lillard this generation's Kevin Garnett? Um and, and I think there are a lot of parallels in terms of how their careers have gone. Obviously not very similar as players, but at KG joins the Celtics at age 31. Lillard turns 31 next season. I, I think the most glaring similarity though is how they've handled this first or, you know, kind of first few chapters, I guess, of their careers where, you know, Kevin Garnett was kind of the lovable loser in Minnesota. And and Damian Lillard, I think, has kind of reached that point in Portland where, you know, the team is never bad enough that, you know, you're actually thinking they're going to force their way out or, you know, they're not winning 20 games a year. They're, they're always right there. Like KG took the Timberwolves to the Western conference finals. Lillard took the Blazers to the Western conference finals two years ago. They've had very similar levels of success. Um, there's been very similar, I think processes in terms of trying and failing to build the right team around these guys. And it hasn't gotten to this point yet, but with Kevin Garnett, it it just kind of reached this point where he had no choice, but to preserve his own legacy for the first time and, and kind of look out for himself and, and, and finally make it clear that he would be interested in playing anywhere but Minnesota. And again, Lillard hasn't gone to that, that length yet, but it does feel like it, that could be coming, whether it's this year or next year or midway through next season. Who knows? But I, I think the most glaring similarity overall is that when Kevin Garnett asked out and ended up going to Boston, and if Lillard were to ask out and and go somewhere else where he'd have a better chance to win, I don't think anybody, you know, fans, media, whoever would fault them.
2: No, it's uh, yeah, it's been tough for Lillard. I think, um, you know, some of it, I I don't I don't want to be the person who like also puts it entirely on CJ McCollum. Cause I think CJ McCollum is kind of like a, a, a scapegoat for a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what more Lillard's supposed to do. I think, I think that's kind of what it comes down to is you look at the resumes of both these guys and you're like, what, how, how many more, you know, how much more were they supposed to do for their teams in terms of, you know, I mean, KG, especially offense and defense, um, but Lillard on offense, you know, past three seasons in the playoffs, he's 28 points a game efficiently, um, over two to one assist to turnover ratio. Like he's, I mean, he's incredible. Like the, you know, obviously his clutch shot making is, is unlike anything else. Part of that's because the team's not good enough and they're always in, uh, close games. But, um, I don't know, man. I mean, I think, you know, if he, if he ended up being more like a Dirk, like someone who uh, just stays the whole time regardless maybe maybe gets a title i think that would be cool as well but um we also might be just kind of past that era where it's like guys you know some guys don't value that as much and like you said preserving your uh legacy and trying to kick a ring i you know at this point how am i going to blame him for that
1: no and that's exactly what kg went through in minnesota where i think everybody Timberwolves fans included, you know, if you had if you had any ill will uh, about how that unfolded, it was directed toward the organization. It wasn't directed towards Kevin Garnett. It was like, please, by all means, like you've you've given everything to us, and it just it's not going to work out. There's no path uh, to you winning a title, you know, while you're still in your prime. We like it almost felt. I, I bet that a lot of Timberwolves fans were ecstatic to see KG win, even though they don't care or maybe even don't like the Boston Celtics. You know, I, I think everybody who rooted for KG wanted to see him get a title. And I feel like Dame would have the exact same scenario, right? Where like, maybe you feel a little bit uh, burned if you're, if you're a trailblazers fan, but like Lillard has, despite like not winning anything has, it has like one of the highest approval ratings of any star in the league. And every single other team would love to have Damian Lillard on its roster. So I, again, it hasn't gotten to that point. There's been no indications that Lillard actually wants out, but you know, the clock's ticking. Like he's, by the time he reaches age 32, 33, 34, you know, guys are are playing into their their mid 30s and, and still able to preserve their prime, but i mean the clock is is very much ticking on him to to finally add a title to his resume. So I, I don't know where he ends up. That's probably the the more difficult part is like where where do you place him where he's in a markedly better situation. Um but i, I do think much like KG, you know, you mentioned Dirk as an example of like does he stick it out and and obviously for Dirk it paid off handsomely with with the win over Miami in 2011 but the 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 difference there to me is that Dirk had you know they'd been a one seed before they had been the favorite to win the title multiple times in the past and part of the failures were on Dirk whereas it it does seem like one Portland has never gone into the playoffs as the favorite or even the second favorite or even the third favorite and two even though they haven't you know broken through and gone to the finals like nobody's ever looked and said like man Dame just didn't play up to to what we expected
2: yeah I mean the only the only series that comes to mind is that series against the Pelicans, um, you know, where drew holiday kind of shut him down. But other yeah. than that, again, yeah, like you think about the series against OKC, um, with the insane shot that he hit, you think about this double overtime. Yeah. I think, you know, 50 points he had against Denver. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what you're putting on his shoulders in terms of their failures. Um, And I think I think letting Stotts go or them mutually parting ways or however they want to do it public relations wise. um, I think that was the logical move forward. I think that usually is in a situation like this, Um, just like I think it would be for like the Bucks and Budenholzer. You know, I think I think if you are as an organization, if you're worried that your guy. Is considering leaving or you, you know, it's logical that he's in a spot where it may make sense for him to demand a trade sooner than later based on, you know, cause like you're, these guys, their agents all know like how, what, how these teams can spend their money and like what trades are available as well as like the general managers do. Right. Like if you're Giannis or you're Dame, your agent knows exactly like what the team is pretty much capable of doing. I think. Um, and I think, I think, you know, you have to start making steps as an organization to change the team around him as much as possible so that he doesn't go seeking a different situation. Mm-hmm. So step one is, you know, we get rid of the coach um, that you've played with or that's led you to initial success. If that doesn't work, step two is just really shaking things up with the team. And then the step three is if that if none of that works, then you have to trade mm-hmm. the guy because that's the only way now the franchise goes into self-preservation mode. Right. Um, yeah.
1: Right. And there are some situations where, you know, if you handle the trade correctly, which almost never happens in, right. in terms of, you know, like the franchise always loses, you know, when you're giving up the really good player in his prime. But yeah, like it, it can kind of go both ways where if you get to the end of the line and, and the Blazers very, may very well be approaching that point where like usually one sign is fire a coach who's done a pretty good job. It's like, well, that's that's the next logical move. Like we can't, we can't fire Joseph Nurkic. So we're going to fire the coach. Um, there's only so much you could do, you know, like you you could try to, you could try to package, you know, I don't know, Covington and McCollum and two future first round picks and go get another star. But at the end of the day, unless one of those stars is, you know, like, if you're, unless you're getting like LeBron or Kawhi or KD, like, I don't even, I don't know if it's enough. You know, like if you could pair Jason Tatum with Damian Lillard, like, I don't, I don't even know if that team is, like, it, are they even like a top two title favorite? I don't know. Like the, the league is so deep that you need, you you need a pretty stacked roster to feel really good about your chances to win the title. And when a team like the Nets exists, like, it's, it's, it's just really tough to top that.
2: Yeah, I know it's kind of a, um, like, it's a, a Blazers Twitter loves the idea of Giannis being on the Blazers. Um, and I, I think, love the idea of Lillard being on the Bucks. Right, exactly. No, it's like, for some reason, like, these two guys seem like they would be the perfect, like, guys to team up, right, to, to try yeah. to make something happen. But there's zero logical moves to let that happen. Um, just in terms of trades, it's just not possible. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a, a sidebar.
1: Yeah, I don't want to get too deep into that, but I think more than anything else, it's a compliment to Lillard that he could play alongside anybody. You know, oh like yeah. There there aren't that many guys you can say like he'd be pre- he'd be perfect with Giannis. He'd be perfect with Durant. He'd be perfect with LeBron. And I mean that that just speaks to like he he really is the ideal number two. He's probably overqualified to be a number two but he's maybe a little bit underqualified to be a number one. Like he's in that one and a half range where he definitely can't be the best player. Like he's as great as Damian Lillard is even on his best nights, which we saw a week ago, you know, you're not even going to beat the Denver nuggets half the time. Um, you know, there's, it's just kind of this unquantifiable thing where like on LeBron or Durant's or Kawhi's best night, or and even Curry, I think, and he's so similar to Lillard that it feels kind of wrong to say, but like when those guys are at their absolute best, their team will not lose. And for whatever reason with Lillard, I, I don't, I, it has to be a defensive shortcoming. I don't know, because hes it's hard to imagine that him that he could be any better offensively, but we've seen it time and time again. Like, he could play as well as possible, and even when the team around him plays an okay game, it's, it's just not enough. So I would love to see him team up with, with literally any other superstar, but when you start to get to the nuts and bolts of how that would actually work or why that other team would make that deal, like – it, it's hard to to really carve out like a, a true, like obvious place that he should go.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think um, it, he might be a tough number one. It could be because of his defense. You know, I think it is hard to be a true, true number one um, carry a team to the finals kind of a guy if you are not a positive on defense also. Um, right. But I mean, Curry Curry's not a positive on defense. Um, I, I, know he's like one of the best players of all time, his off ball movement. That's something that's up, separates him mm-hmm. from Lillard. Um, but I mean, Curry also won the majority of his titles when Kevin Durant was the best player on the team.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's a, that's an entirely different, that might be like yeah. a 10 part series for me, uh, someday on, on the Warriors era. But uh, last thing I want to touch on before we get out of here, we finally put up our way too early top 150 for next season the eight cat fantasy rankings. This was a lot of fun to put together. Um, You know, in years past we've been on a more condensed timeline and we've, you know, we've kind of had to throw it together more quickly, but we were able to take a lot more time with these, you know, brief write-ups for each guy. And, you know, you and I each did multiple sweeps going through and, you know, moving guys up or down and, and kind of, you know, checking the other on, on certain players who we thought were maybe a little too high or a little too low. We'll do a full episode on this later this week, just kind of diving in and, and kind of getting into more of our reasoning for some of these rankings. But uh, we start with Jokic at the top, Curry two, Durant three, Lillard four, Joel Embiid five. Um, I could read the entire 150 if you want, but is, is there anybody that you want to hit on just of just of the elite guys, um, just to kind of to dive into this before we go you know with a full deep dive later this week?
2: You know, I think, I think, um, Jokic and Curry is going to be the kind of one, two, you know, like if you have first pick, who do you take? Uh, I think that's going to be the main debate heading into next season for the, for the number one pick. I mean, I think it should be Jokic. Um, You know, if you kind of dive into just like, not the specific rankings, but like the Z scores of these guys that Jokic was like so far above or significantly farther above uh, Curry than like, if you compare, you know, Curry to Durant and so on and so on. Um, I think it should be Jokic. I don't think the team, especially because, I mean, Jamal Murray's not going to be healthy for the start of next year, right? Uh, probably. So he's going to yeah, have to almost continue. Certainly not. Yeah. So he's going to have to continue to um just like completely carry the, the nuggets as he has been.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that makes Jokic so great is the durability, you know, right. it, maybe at some point that'll change, but part of the reason that he was the number one player wire to wire last year is he, did he miss any time? Maybe this one game uh, throughout the regular season, like, that was the huge separator, especially this past year, where so many guys were missing chunks of time. Um, I mean, he was the best per-game player, and he was by far the best player when you're talking total value. Uh, and I, I think he'll maybe get some more competition for that title this year. But at the same time, like very little about what Jokic did this season didn't seem replicable, right?
2: Uh, Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's his his percentages were pretty crazy. I mean, I guess there's always a chance that his... um you know, his overall efficiency takes a, a slight step back because, I mean, for him, you know, as a center, like he went 57, 39, 87. That's pretty crazy. Um, You know, his his free throw shooting, basically all of those were near career highs. Um But I other than that, no. I mean, I mean, there's always a chance he scores more points or dishes more assists. So, um yeah, I don't I don't expect anything major to change for him.
1: What do you think about Embiid? We settled on number five for Embiid. Like I said, it, to me, it almost felt like he was on pace for like a, a too good to be true season as far as health. And then he ends up missing 13 games in March and April. And he's kind of back to that same trajectory that he's been on the last few years where it, it does feel like overall, based on where he was when he came into the league, this feels like best case because he missed like the first two years of his career. And for a while, it was like, man, if you could just get 40 games out of this guy, that's going to be great. He's been healthier than I thought. But you know, especially when you compare him to Jokic, like those guys were neck and neck for the MVP. But when you're talking fantasy, when one guy's probably gonna miss two or three games and the other guy might miss 15 to 20 games, um, that's a pretty big concern. So I, I feel like we we ended up maybe a little bit higher on Embiid than I am personally, just because I, I try not to take those kind of risks, especially you know in round one. But with that said, if Embiid is it, you know falls because of, of those concerns and he's available at seven or eight, somebody's gonna get a massive discount.
2: Yeah, Jokic at five is like something you would do probably in a best ball league where yeah. you don't have to worry about setting lineups. Maybe you're drafting 10 teams. You're looking for best case scenario. Um, I'm with you. If, if this is like a roto league, maybe I don't draft him that high. But again, I mean, Jokic since 2013, since he was drafted, has only played 260 games. He's never played more than 64 games in a season. I um, mean, he, he has a he. Uh, has, has a small tearing his meniscus right now in the playoffs. Like it's it's kind of continuing for him. So um, again, I think I think five is appropriate if you're best ball. If not, I can see the argument for like end of the first round.
1: So finishing out the top ten, we had Harden at six, Giannis at seven, Towns at eight, Davis at nine, Doncic at ten. I, I put in the Giannis write up. If it wasn't for free throw shooting, he'd be in contention for the number one pick, and that was true this past year. That was true the year before. We haven't seen a whole lot in these playoffs to to convince me that that's not going to be an issue next year yep. and probably for the rest of his career.
2: Giannis at seven is uh it's it's getting tough. Um, I I don't know if I would take him over Towns. I I Towns has
0: been a well, the it's tough fan. because
1: Towns is now suddenly this injured guy who you know, was 82 games his first few years and I I don't know if you if he goes back to that then for sure but. I, I don't know if you can now count on him to be a, a 75 plus guy.
2: Right. I mean, they're not putting up. I mean, their their counting stats aren't dissimilar, right? I mean, they're both pretty close to like 25, 12, and five along of nights. Um, and Towns is going to be more efficient overall. I mean, it's going to be close because Youngest is so good. You know, just general field goal percentage. Um, but Towns hits more threes. His free throw percentage is better. Yeah, Giannis is tough, man. I think I can't remember exactly where he finished this season. Um, but it's if you're in a points league, like obviously Giannis. But um, you know, head-to-head league if you're punting free throws, yeah. Um, Giannis is a uh, not an easy like roto league number seven pick. Uh, I think I think there are other guys who you'd feel a lot safer with
1: unlike some of these guys, he's someone that if you take him, you have to really be conscious of who you're taking with your next two or three picks. You know, where like, if you, if you take Lillard, you're not like, oh no, I have to offset this with this. It's like, you can just kind of go best available, which is what I would think most people prefer to do. But, you know, if you if you take Giannis there, you're either saying, all right, I'm just going to putt free throw percentage, or I have to try to find multiple players who are not only great free throw shooters, but are high volume free throw shooters to try to offset this. And w- with the amount of times that Giannis gets to the line per game, that's just a battle that more often than not, you're probably going to lose.
2: Right. Like if you draft Giannis seven and then with your next pick, maybe you get like Bradley Beal or Kawhi Leonard or something, Kyrie Irving, like a really good free throw shooter. Um, yeah. Then it definitely makes more sense. But um, again, a lot of this, I mean, like, like you know, we we'll, we might do a pod on this later, but um, a lot of this does depend on like what kind of league you're in, you know, and we, we're, we're not, um, you know, we we're generally doing a category roto with this, but um, you know, you have to you have to take into account my in best ball, my head to head, where I'm punting category stuff like that.
1: Last thing, we have LeBron at 14. I I wanted to move him down today, but I started to look at the names behind him, and it just didn't quite feel right. So we left him at 14. I'm okay with that. I, I think based on how he ended the season his stock is probably as low as it's ever been, which is saying a lot uh, considering who we're talking about, but what are your expectations as of now? Like is, is the LeBron that we saw against Phoenix, uh, is that a closer version to what we'll see next year? Or is it going to be pre Solomon Hill rolling into his leg version?
2: (laughs) Well, I hope it's, it's pre Solomon Hill. Um, I think it can be, I, I am still kind of just worried, you know, the it's, he's been more injury prone, right? I mean, it's, he was never injured throughout his entire career in the past three years. Um, he's missed significant time. Uh, I guess he didn't miss, miss that much time last year, um, in the pandemic shortened season, but yeah, I mean, he he ranked his first year in LA, he ranked 14. His second year in LA last year, he was eighth. This year's 20th. Um, so I think drafting me at 14 makes sense. Um, but I don't know man. I mean this it could just be a different stage of LeBron's career. Um he's going to be 36. I refuse to now. accept that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean when's I don't I don't know man. I it, I feel like it's been so far removed. It's it's one thing because we're we're kind of watching it slowly unfold. But if you go back and you watch like a game from like 5 years ago, like second to last season in Cleveland, like the athleticism is is really just a different level. Like it's just something we haven't seen from him in a while. Um and it's just like I. there are moments where I'm watching Lakers games and I feel like I'm just like watching LeBron stand at the top of the three point line and it's kind of direct traffic and pass. And I'm watching him do turnaround post ups and sometimes jump hooks. and I'm like, wh- who like, who is this? Um, yeah. it, it does kind of feel like he is the old man version of himself um, at points. I think that's fair. Sometimes it seems like he's
1: playing. He's like playing as if he's playing as himself on NBA 2K. It's like he's just kind of chilling. But <laughs> I, I like the athleticism thing. Like, I just don't know if I agree with that. Like not that long ago, less than a year ago, he was dominating the NBA finals. And you, it, yes, it was the bubble. Yes, it was not the greatest opponent, uh, especially in retrospect in the Miami Heat. But like his numbers in those finals were as good as pretty much anyone's ever had in finals. When you when you talk about volume and efficiency, and I, I don't remember ever thinking like, oh, he's not jumping as high or he's not, you know, he's not as explosive as he was a couple of years ago. Like, I, I think that the version that we saw the last two weeks was a different version of LeBron. But until then, I really don't think he slowed down all that much.
2: Well, I guess I'll, I will tapes. I, I guess for me, it's more of what are you getting from LeBron in the regular season at this point? Like, can he is he saving it for the playoffs? Because I, I agree with you like plan. and then the ankle injury threw that off. Right. Because I agree with you in the playoffs last year he or the finals, especially he was ridiculous, um, you know, especially at his age. But I think the question becomes if he knows that he can be a top three or four seed every year by just, again, directing traffic, doing post ups, getting his twenty five, seven and seven um, and winning games. Like, is he really going to exert more effort than he has to, you know, because I think at this point. You know, I feel like at this point for LeBron, it just might be more of how do I play till I'm 40? You know, how do yeah. I how do I get the all time scoring record? And he's if he goes hard like it's a playoff game every single game, it's just not going to work. Um, and I think he's he's clearly figured out a way to be a, a, you know, a 25, eight and eight player by just playing almost completely passively for 90 mm-hmm. percent of a NBA game. So I don't know what the, what's going to change about that.
1: All right, I need your prediction. Thursday night, like we said, you'll be in the house. Uh, for your sake, I hope it's a, a rousing Bucks victory. I hope <laughs> you know we'll be talking on Friday and we'll feel completely differently and you'll be hyped up for Game Four. Maybe you'll maybe i will bought tickets to Game Four already. Who knows? Uh, but who wins on Thursday and what's the final score?
2: All right, so I I am going to predict a win, even though I'm not confident that the Bucks should be favored. Um, I think I think the crowd. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of lean on holzer's coaching for his job. Um, Giannis, this is a it's a legacy game for Giannis. Um, and the I think the energy the home court energy I think it's gonna be I think everyone in the building is gonna be super nervous, but I think it's gonna be just like rowdy like I think it's gonna, I think yeah. I think anytime the Bucks get on any sort of run it's going to be crazy in there. Um, and I think that has a chance to at least rattle some of the Nets guys a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna predict, I'm gonna predict kind of a slugfest, maybe like a 105-97 uh, win for the Bucks. I don't know, maybe that's too low considering how good the Nets are at scoring. Um, maybe I should bump that up to like 112-105. I think I'm gonna stick with that, 112-105 Bucks uh, win. What do you think? I don't
1: know. I really don't know. I nothing would surprise me. I, I don't. They're not gonna get blown out thoroughly for four quarters like they were last night uh i at the same time nothing that we've seen through these eight quarters so far suggests that they're the better team they've like have they been the better team for even like a five minute stretch at any point in the series um it's it's tough to say so i'm gonna pick the nets i'm not picking against this version of kevin durant which looks as good as we've ever seen him kyrie is completely locked in those guys I, it, it almost makes me wish that James Harden wasn't on this team. Like it, the whole league would be a lot more fun if Harden had gone to like Miami, because then you'd have like Philly, Miami, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, I feel like would all be super equal. But the way that Kyrie and, and Durant are locked in, like they, they both seem to know, you know, when to just pull up for three in someone's face and drain it, you know, when to get to the hoop, when to, when to pass off, when to get Joe uh, Joe Harris involved. Um, they're, they're just in a zone. I think they're rolling right now. I, I think Brooklyn wins. I, I think Buck, the Bucks put in a much better effort. I think they get off to a better start. But I, I think this game plays out more like game one, where, you know, you don't really, you don't come away thinking that the Bucks played badly, but I, I think Brooklyn's just too good. So I'll go Nets. I, I am with you that I think the Bucs try to muck it up a little bit. I'll go Nets 109, Bucks 103. Okay. Yeah, I don't feel great about that by any means. And also Bud coaching for his job. Is that a good thing? Like, what what is that like backed against the wall like is he gonna start the Nasus?
2: oh man uh i don't know what that means um i will say i'm excited to find out i'm glad i will be there in person and i yeah. will get to see bougainholzer uh profusely sweating um worry that he's gonna get fired and become an assistant coach for the trailblazers or something
1: yeah no matter what there's a very good chance that this is going to be a memorable game for one reason or another